We are going to continue our H5 series. We've gone through healing, uh, healthy, hype. Today we're going to talk about habits. And amazingly, next week on our Christmas uh, service, we're going to be talking about hope. thought that was pretty cool. The last couple of weeks, we've asked some questions. And again, these, uh, this series has grown out of some hurts and some pains, anxieties, frustrations, uncertainties, deconstructions, theological disruptions that are happening in our brain, and to try to get us grounded in some key questions that can help us move forward, rather than just saying, I just, I can't do that anymore, or that church experience was bad, or this trauma in my life, whether it was loss, is completely disrupted what I think or believe about God, rather than just being all about that, let us get grounded in some really key identifiers, questions that help us uh, move forward in a redemptive and positive way. So asking the question, where does it hurt, helps us start the healing process. Rather than just navigating and managing all of our dysfunctions, if we can get to the core of where our soul has been damaged then we can start the process of healing. What is it that you really want uh, can help us clarify our behaviors rather than just dancing around, well, let's try this, let's try that, and let's, well, let's just say this thing because this is what's on my mind. No, asking what do you want can help get you to, if, that's, if this is what you really want, then your behavior has to change in accordance. Last week, we talked about why are you here? Who are you? And what are you doing here? And we talked about how our identity is grounded in our stories. And if we forget our stories, then sometimes we forget who we are. Today I want to talk about habits, which is a really uh, not a great word, I think, but it works for what I want to talk about. And the reason why it's not a great word is because some words have a lot of connotations. Here's one of the things that comes up. Whenever we talk about habits, oftentimes most of us are going to think about the bad habits, the things that we do that we know we're not supposed to do, the things that we keep trying so hard to overcome, and yet we just can't seem to do it. So there's, these negative, there's this negative connotation or negative definition to the word habit. You have a bad habit of doing X, fill in the blank. Some of you think of habit and you think of a good thing. This is a really, really good habit to have. Uh, Things that you are just constantly doing and you're just in the habit of doing those things. If you're interested in learning more about habit and social psychology, behavioral science, there's this great author named Charles Duhigg who actually has written a book entitled The Power of Habit. And he explains how habits can transform work and life and family and all those different types of things. The reason why I've hesitated with the word habit is because whenever we think about bad habits, the thing that I've often run into in my own personal life and talking with people is this sense that I just, I have to get rid of this bad habit. It's this thing that I want to get rid of. And many of you um, probably have that thing you know that you do on a regular basis, and you're like, oh, I did it again. Yes, I went to that ice cream shop, even though I know I'm not supposed to do that. Um, Maybe it's a a bad habit of hygiene or something like that. Um, Some of, all of us have those kinds of things. The problem has arisen whenever we talk about bad habits that we are constantly having a conversation of how do we stop the bad habit. And one of the philosophies that I picked up many, many years ago when doing youth ministry 
is that much of the conversation and the communication that comes from pulpits, teachers, pastors, leaders, etc., is this, stop doing it. And you're kind of like sitting there receiving the message of stop doing it. It's like, I know, I know, I'm trying, I get it. You don't have to tell me what I already know. And a philosophy came to me or through my reading or studying or working or wherever, I don't know, that part of the reason why it's so difficult is because we have created a formula of trying to remove the bad thing from our lives rather than replacing it with something else. And the reason why removal is a bad philosophy is because a removal just creates a vacuum. And like other vacuums, they suck anything else into it. So if you remove one bad habit, then you just simply put something else negative into it. And so the philosophy for me, which is something that I've tried to practice in my own life, is don't try to remove a bad habit, replace it with something else. Put something else in there that is life-giving, redemptive, joyful. Put something else in there that causes you to shift behavior rather than trying to stop behavior. Now, one other disclaimer before I move on with the rest of the message that I have prepared. The reason why this is so important to me is because oftentimes the messaging, the feeling that comes with stop doing that thing that you're supposed to do, it comes with this veneer of shame. Because if you can't stop this behavior... If you can't stop this habit, if you can't seem to get yourself to cease doing that thing that you're not supposed to do, the thing that naturally comes after it is shame. And if there's anything that I believe that Jesus and this beautiful gospel is about, it is the removal of shame. It is not shaming to move forward towards redemptive life. God is hoping to take all of that away because that shame, all of that, that there's this one phrase, stop shooting on yourself, <laughs> is the thing that naturally comes. And so I hope that today what I'd like to do is shift us from don't try to just stop doing the bad habit. Let's try to replace it with something. Redemptively, joyfully, hopefully. And it's summed up in this one question for me. What commitments do I need to make? What commitments do I need to make? Now, there's all sorts of beautiful philosophy that goes with it. It's grounded in free will. It's grounded in discipline and determinism, all these different types of things. Today, I'd just like to talk about one real specific commitment that could radically change your identity, how you see yourself, how, and, and therefore how you behave how your discipleship, how your spiritual practices, how they all take shape. This one commitment in my mind is one of the most central pieces of the Jesus narrative, of the story of Christianity, of why it is that we follow this Jesus. And I hope to share or illuminate that for you today. We're grounded in this one verse, Proverbs 16, 9. Say this with me, if you would, please. In their hearts, humans plan their course but the Lord establishes their steps. Now, if you notice the word Lord there is all capitalized. Whenever you read in your Bible, the word L-O-R-D in all capitals, it's not a generic word for Lord. We often use that word Lord as a generic term. Whenever you see capitals, it means this is the divine name. It is personal. 
It is relational. It is covenant. It is, I want to know you intimately and personally. I have my own translation because there's so many nuances. I didn't get into all the Hebrew today as I've done before. I just want to share with you that my nuance is, is this, given from the, uh, the Hebrew background. The mind and the heart of humanity plans its way. By the way, we all do this. We all plan. Think about the word um, choshev, actually, in the Hebrew is the word for thinking and processing and considering. It's actually the same word for computer in modern Hebrew. It's kind of cool. So we plan and we think about our way, what it is that we're going to do. But it's the Lord. yod Hey vav Hey, the divine name of God, this covenantal relational God that makes it possible. The, the Hebrew word is the word yes, that causes the yes to come as a result of our plans and causes every step to actually be yes. I love this verse because when we talk about habits and when we talk about commitments, most of the time the answer is, no, I couldn't do it. It's a negative response. I couldn't accomplish it. Many of you already know this. January 1 is coming. And some of you are going to make New Year's resolutions, yes? Oh, very low enthusiasm in this room. Apparently, we've all been sobered by the last couple years. Yes, this is, all, everybody knows this. January 1 comes, we make a commitment, we're going to do this. You might have even wrote out a plan. January 2 comes and it's over, right? It's the, we just can't seem to follow through. We can't seem to get there. Another thing that comes to my mind when I think about commitment is people that seem to have amazing achievement. Uh, there was this, apparently Larry Bird has an anniversary that's uh, recent. Muhammad Ali, of course, Abi Wambach from the soccer. You have to make sure that the ladies are represented in the soccer, Jerry Rice. And of course, many, 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 many others that we could have put on the screen. Sometimes when we think about commitment or habits, we think about something that is outstanding achievement. And to be honest with you, when I see this, I love watching phenomenal athletes uh, do their thing. It's just really an incredible thing to watch. But it, then when I think about me doing that, I'm like, mm, yeah. I don't know if I have that kind of level of commitment. There's another kind of commitment that I sometimes hesitate on. That's the deep kind of moral, ethical, justice commitment that lives in your soul that no matter what hardships and challenges you face, there's a resilience that lives within you that is deeply and passionately committed to the cause. And no matter what comes within your way, no matter what hindrances might happen to fall upon you, you are deeply passionately committed. And I'll be honest, sometimes when I hear the word commitment, I don't know if I have that kind of commitment either. Commitment has this kind of sense that you are either committed or you're not. You're either fully 100% dedicated or you've broken your promise. It's this either or. It's kind of like a dichotomous way of thinking about commitment. You're all in or you're not. You're committed or you're not. One of my favorite ways to think about committed actually came through a video that I saw um, apparently, this elevator at the sheriff's office in Colorado wasn't working, so they decided to put up 
a camera to try to figure out what was going on, and this apparently is what they captured, and then I'll have some commentary or thoughts afterwards. You already know who it is. Silent talk, silent talk, silent talk. Gonna do it for me. Now watch me whip. Now watch me nene. Okay. Now watch me whip, whip. Watch me nene. Why me do it? Now watch me whip. Kill it. Watch me nene. Okay. Now watch me whip, whip. Watch me nene. Can you do it? Now watch me. Oh, watch me, watch me. Oh, watch me, watch me. Oh, watch me, watch me. Oh, 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 oh. Watch me, watch me. Oh, watch me, watch me. Oh, watch me, watch me. Tony, Michelle, how are you? definition of committed, by the way. Um, uh, my, my guess is that that was actually staged. I can, there's a couple moments where I'm like, they totally planned this. This was, wasn't quite as spontaneous as maybe they made it out to be. But there was a sense of commitment there. Like, you have to be all in to, to do this kind of thing. And I, I, I've been in situations with uh, many of you at, at moments where there's times like that that are spontaneous. And there's uh, moments where you are just totally in, and you're committed, and you, you just go for it, and it's so much fun. So these are the kinds of things that I think about when I hear the word commitment. Complete passion and dedication to a cause, whether a, a cause or a, a moral or an ethic or a justice movement. Um, complete all in to a sport or a trade. Uh, being all in when it comes to being fun and spontaneous. But there's another definition of commitment that I think goes far deeper than some of those definitions. It's illustrated perfectly in a story that happened back in 2009. Many of you remember U.S. Airways Flight 1549. I think I got that wrong, actually. But U.S. Airways took off from LaGuardia Airport under 
the direction and leadership of Captain now Sully Sullenberg. He's a very famous pilot. For those of you who remember the story, they take off in about 3,000 feet in the air. They hit a flock of geese. So they have dual engine failure. Um, I've watched uh, some documentaries on, on just the, the amazing feat of leadership and engineering and the decisions, snap um, decisions that they had to make. The plane essentially has nowhere to go. They cannot get to any local um, airstrip, no airport within the approximation where they need to be because of their rapid descent with no engine power. And he lands the plane in the Hudson River. And when you watch the documentary, it's really intense, and I felt my body just kind of tense up because he's talking about how he knows that the plane actually has to land at 11 degrees at a certain speed. He knows exactly and precisely what needs to happen in order for this plane to actually make it. If it's like 12, 13, 14 degrees, massive damage could possibly occur, and then, of course, rather than plane landing, it could break apart if you do it four or five degrees, just all these things. It's really kind of incredible. You can watch more of it if you'd like. It's, uh, the footage is just astounding. Of course, the humanity of being in that is just, uh, of course, very touching and, and very anxiety-driving. The story follows that after this event happened, where all of the passengers, the crew, were saved, no one died as a result of this accident, Soli was touted as a hero what an amazing man this is, that he took, uh, he had about three and a half minutes to make rapid decisions to make sure that all of his crew and, of course, all the people on the plane were saved. And people talked about how he was a hero. But then you listen to how he talks about it. And it's really quite amazing to me to the, see the contrast um, here's a very brief, there's lots of interviews that you can see online. This is a clip, I'd like to show you a clip of Sully um, with one interview about where he and his wife talk about that status of hero. I still feel a responsibility for everything that happened. I mean, that's, that's literally a part of the job, is that good, bad, or indifferent, that's the captain's responsibility. Meanwhile, at their home in Danville, California, he and his wife say the word hero makes them both uncomfortable. Sully was thrust into a situation and did what he knew to do. It wasn't a situation of his choosing. I'm proud of him. I am immensely proud of him, and I'm grateful to have him home. Um, but I don't think of him as a hero either, I'm afraid. <laughs> But he was prepared. After getting his pilot's license at 16, he was an Air Force fighter pilot and has flown commercially for nearly 30 years. He's an expert on accidents, has trained pilots and crews in emergency procedures, and has written extensively about how crews react in crises. Could there have been anyone on the planet better equipped to fly that plane that day? Yeah, thousands, but it just happened to be me. Do you hear that? I love his response. Thousands of pilots. Why? Because all of us, the whole crew, are committed fundamentally to the same thing. There's a kind of commitment that goes deep to the core of who we are, how we behave, how we act, the habits that we then put in place to reinforce that commitment. 
that when tragedy strikes, when difficulty happens, the thing that you do or how you behave comes not because you're a hero, but because that commitment has been there since the very beginning. And this ultimately is the kind of commitment that I'd like to share with you that I think is important for when we go through social, experiential, political, religious, theological disruptions. When we have moments where we don't know if we have what it takes to get to the other place, the question is, what kind of commitment have we made that has spurred on the habits that we practice so that when we get to points where there's disruption or deconstruction or struggle or trauma or tragedy, we know how to act, how to behave. There's some sort of grounding within us. This is the kind of commitment that I'm going uh, to hopefully share with you. This is just a very brief way of thinking about commitments are the things that create habits. Habits create virtues, and the virtues are the ones that create resiliency. And people talk about this kind of matrix for what happened with Captain Sully. He wasn't a hero because he had resilience, and he knew exactly what to do. He was a hero because long ago, he had commitment that created all these habits for how to train and how to think about. It was just part of who he was, so that when that moment came, he was able to respond to it. I'd like to share with you a concept from a sociologist by the name of Charles Cooley, a 19th, 20th century psychologist, who has suggested that how we view ourselves, how we think about ourselves, is something that he's going to call the looking glass self. Now, psychologists and sociologists have talked about theories of self for a long time. It's basically the question, how do you know who you are? Some of us identify who we are by what we do. Some of us identify who we are by the skills that we have. We're just naturally talented and good at this. Some of us identify who we are, how we see ourselves, how we esteem ourselves by how much money is in the bank or how much we can acquire or how many medals or honors or whatever it is that we can do. And some of us believe that who we are, how we think about ourselves, how we esteem ourselves is just written in the DNA. It's just who we are. It's determinism. That's just my parents' chromosomes, and this is just who I am. So there's all these theories of self, and each one of these theories, if you believe them or if you practice them, have certain implications for how you live. Cooley comes along and he says, I'm going to suggest that there's a different way of thinking about self. And he suggests this thing called a looking glass self. Fundamentally, the principle is that what you believe about yourself is fundamentally shaped by what you think other people around you, the most important people around you, think of you. So society, loved ones, coworkers, bosses, anybody that is close to you that you think is important in your life, how you think about yourself is greatly shaped by what you think they think of you. This is called the looking glass self. And this is also why many of us who come from difficult situations where we have a really bad boss that talks bad about us destroys who we are. If you've had parents that have had that situation and and maybe have said some things, why that changes our self-esteem or or awareness of who we are. Uh, If you're a part of a society, if you have a particular identity 
and that society says, well, that part of who you are is not acceptable, not valid, um, is an aberration, then you take on your psyche and your soul those feelings, that sense, which is why um, there's depression and suicide in certain populations because the society itself has structured certain values and the people that have those particular traits or characteristics then take on those values and how they see themselves. This is called the looking glass self. What you believe about yourself is greatly determined by what you believe others believe about you. This is really kind of brilliant. So the question is, what do you believe about the people around you? And what do you believe that they believe about you? And here is where commitment is going to radically change. If this theory is correct and we live and operate by this theory, here's where commitment makes a radical difference for how we view ourselves, our identity, and therefore our behavior in this world. Question. What do you think God believes and thinks about you? If it is true that the view of yourself is shaped and molded primarily by what the most important people in your life think about you, questions, A, what does God think about you? B, have you made a commitment covenantally to make sure that that God is the most important person in your life? And if you make a commitment to that, if you drive deep within your soul in the ways of this entire story of covenant, connection, of intimacy, of laying down your life, for a God who has laid down his life for you, then that person, that person, that God, that Jesus, that spirit becomes ultimately the most important person in your life. And if that person, if that God becomes that most important person in your life, and what God thinks about you is about how you were knit together by him in your mother's womb, how you were created in his image and his likeness, how he gave you gifts and talents and skills and abilities to live and to thrive and to find joy. If that is all what is true, then your fundamental commitment to establishing God on the throne of your life could radically change how you see yourself, how you behave, how you act, and like the Soli illustration, how then you manage and deal with other traumas, challenges, frustrations that come to your own identity, your personhood, your purpose, your meaning. This is the question. What do you believe? What do you fundamentally at the core of your being believe that this Jesus, this God in flesh, what do you believe he believes about you? Now, there's so many illustrations that we could give, and maybe that's a little bit of why we want to go back to the Gospels and figure out who this Jesus is and the good news. But there's this famous story, one of my favorites that I tell all the time, so I'm sorry if it's redundant, but Jesus was walking on the water, and Peter sees him. 
And Peter, being one of the disciples who's trying to become like Jesus, calls out, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come out on the water. And what does Jesus say? Many of you know the story. Okay, then come. And that moment in and of itself is an exemplification, a teaching, a declaration that this Jesus, to his disciples, actually believes that Peter and the disciples, therefore you and your discipleship, your followership of this Jesus, he actually believes that you can do this. He believes in you. His commission to you about going out and making disciples and loving your neighbor and loving your enemy is not just a commandment. It's also a declaration that I, as Jesus, as God in the flesh, believe that you can do this. It's a declaration of faith that this God has in you. And the story of Jesus, the story of the way of Jesus, the story of this God that has been told through Genesis, through Revelation, and all of the stuff that we've been talking about is fundamentally the story. Not of how you should have more faith in God, but about how this God has tremendous faith in you. And if it is true that you formulate your identity, your esteem, how you view yourself, through the lens of how the most important person thinks and believes in you, then my question, my exhortation, my encouragement to you is to make a deep and passionate commitment to this God, to strengthening that relationship, to pursuing that covenant, to growing in more more and more intimacy with that God, and causing that God, that Jesus, to rise in your conscience and your soul as the most important person. Richard Rohr, the uh, Catholic Franciscan monk, has put it this way, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. And my prayer for all of us through this series of trying to get whole and healed and trying to become a unified person is to behold this beautiful God who has created you in his image and his likeness. Every single one of you, down to the last cell, down to that last hair that you keep plucking out, down to everything about who you are as a God who has created you, called you, commissioned you, loves you. And so often, part of the challenge that we all face is that that beautiful relationship with God is really not the most important relationship. We have more important relationships with our work. Sometimes we have more important relationships with the immediate family members. We have more important relationships with our skills and gifts and talents and ability. We have more important relationships with how we view ourselves within the context of society. And then no wonder we struggle with how we view ourselves, how we identify ourselves, how we love ourselves. Because we think about ourselves in the way that other people, the most important people in our lives, think of us. So my prayer and my hope is that your commitment rises to causing this God to become the most important person in your life. And as that God becomes the most important person in your life, it radically shapes and transforms how you see yourself. Committing yourself to the way of Jesus is more than just a statement of religious doctrine. It is a declaration of who you are and what you believe about yourself and your place in this world. So, 
to the Christian who loves God, maybe you've been walking with him for a long time, are the habits or the religious practices in your life that you have, are they the most important thing? Are, are that, is that behavior the most important thing in your life? Is the devotional time that you have? Sometimes we get all mucked up with this, that the religious traditions that we have are actually more important rather than the God who is most important. To the non-Christian who maybe is concerned or critical or uncertain or unsure or maybe just apathetic, my encouragement is to consider deeply how thinking about somebody who thinks deeply about you could radically change your life. To thinking about how pondering in your soul, in your spirit, mentally, spiritually, psychologically, that there is this creator being who loves deeply and about how causing that to become the most important thing could radically shift and change how you view yourself. And to the curious wanderer who's just bouncing back and forth all over the place and maybe uncertain about where to land, where to find, and that in and of itself could become the most important thing, the constant looking, the constant searching, constant trying of things. My encouragement is there's a God. There is a Jesus who has the most incredible faith and love in who you are. And committing yourself to that way and to that person could radically change your identity. I think it's found in this verse. The heart and the mind of humanity, we plan our way. But what makes it all possible, what makes it yes, is this Lord covenant identity, master, most important thing, the highest priority in our lives. And to allow that to influence how we view ourselves and how we view our behavior, our place in this world. So that when you are flying a plane at 3,200 feet in the air and a flock of geese run into your engines and you have nowhere to go, something within you, within your identity, something within that commitment postures you ready to know who you are and what you're doing and to give you that sense of resilience and virtue in times and moments like that. So my friends, my, my hope and prayer is that you'll ask the question, so what commitments do I need to make? First and foremost, I hope that you make a commitment to this God because he has made a commitment to you. And that commitment in and of itself could radically change how you view, how you see, how you understand who you are and your place in this world. Okay, God, thank you so much once again for your wisdom literature. And I pray that something in what we've talked about today could bring help and healing to my friends um, my beloved here. Thank you for your teachings. Um, thank you once again for this season, and as we head into it, may we um, recognize what a tremendous commitment you've made to us, and may we return unto you that same commitment, that covenant, that relationship, and allow that to transform who we are. We pray in your name. Amen.